and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 113, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And we would just want to say a massive welcome if you are a new listener to the Retro Hour podcast. And of course, if you listen every week, we appreciate you being there as well. Because checking our stats recently, we've had quite a lot of new people through the door. Yeah, totally. And it, it's great, you know, just to see the podcast growing, but also retaining this really cool old school audience as well. Now, if you are new to the show, the way this works is, I mean, how long have you been a video gamer for? What age did you first pick up a control pad? Oh, probably five or yeah. something. <laughs> I think I was about four years old when I played my first ever game at a friend's house. I still remember what it was, actually. It was um, Kung Fu Master on the NES. I think mine was Missile Command. On the Atari 2600? Yeah. You are old school, Ravi. <laughs> well, and we've been lifelong video game fans. All our lives we've played video games. And this show kind of covers the entire history of gaming. I mean, the line that I generally kind of use to people is the ZX81 to the PlayStation 2. Yeah, it's kind of the backstage of gaming. But what we like to do is we like to get really in-depth as well. Yeah. So we'll have some, you know, kind of standard information in there, but then we'll also have some really nerdy technical stuff as well. Because I was doing a bit of research recently, and the video game industry, how much do you think it's worth worldwide now? It, billions. I know it's in the billions. $108 billion, it's wow. estimated. And it's going to grow this year. And this show, we kind of chart the history of an industry that went from, like, you know, garages and bedrooms and backstreet towns and now is the biggest form of entertainment media in the world. Well, we're talking about barns and sheds and stuff and our guest this week, David Wise, he was actually working for Rare but he didn't know what was going on in the world. He was creating great games for like the NES and for the SNES and you know he did the soundtrack for Donkey Kong Country. Amazing game. Just absolutely amazing. And he kind of didn't know that there was this wider world because he was trapped in this shed with no internet, nothing. And there were people all around the world doing these different things. And that's what we're trying to do because, I mean, now the whole world's connected. But like you said, then before the age of the internet, a lot of that stuff isn't documented. No. Apart from a few magazine articles that you might find on archive.org. So the aim of this show is that we will bring you the backstage of gaming and get the people on that were actually involved in these legendary games, these amazing companies, the games that you grew up playing, essentially. And this week, our special guest, if you're a fan of Rare games, I mean, how many amazing titles did Rare put out on Nintendo platforms? Oh, just hundreds. And also, there's some Genesis stuff. There's yeah. just like, God, he's even done ukulele now, which is the new kind of Rare remake. Yeah, know? like a school reunion kind yeah, of game, yeah. isn't it, really? And so today, we're going to be talking to David Wise. He's actually going to be coming in the studio in about 20 minutes from now. He's on his way in because he lives just around the corner. So we thought, you know, instead of getting him on the phone or Skype, we'll get him in. So that was nice, isn't yeah, it? Get yeah. the kettle on, Ravi. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we just want to say, you know, we might need your support soon, guys, as well, because we have gone in for something that we're crossing our fingers for. We're not overly optimistic, but we'd like to get involved anyway. And that is, we've put an entry in again for this year's British Podcast Awards. Yeah, I, it's a really good awards, and uh, I hope we get a free bar this time like we did last time. <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't have probably announced that in the podcast here. The week there'd be loads turning up now. Yeah. Everyone's coming, not bothered about podcasts, I just want to be there. Uh, but we had, it was the first one last year, and the entries closed about two weeks ago, so we put, we've gone for best interview podcast. Yeah, we went year. for best newcomer last year, and I think seeing we've done over 100 interviews now every single week, I think we kind of stand a good chance in best interview. Well, fingers crossed, and there are going to be some public votes open soon as well um maybe by the time the show goes out and they're going to open like mid-march so if we uh, you know do need any help guys we'll post those on our social media platforms anything you can do you know i remember last year it was that like, literally fill your email address in and click a button you know, yeah. to vote so it always makes a massive difference to the show and uh, anyway you can help get the word out there we also have like reviews now that we have on facebook and itunes as well so all of those do help us get a, you know, get us in front of new people Totally, and what also helps us get in front of new people 
it's the donations. You know, you guys are helping support this show and helping us bring amazing guests and events to you. Because people don't realise, you know, doing a weekly retro gaming podcast, doing a weekly podcast of any genre, it, it takes, it actually costs more than you'd think. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that you guys don't see. You know, a lot of time that me and Dan put in to make this show fantastic. We do it out of the kindness of our hearts because we love doing it, but if we can get any help into the running of the show, that means we don't have to pay for it all out of our own pocket. You know, if we can split the cost of it with you guys. That's always appreciated. And of course, for making a donation, any amount, big or small, it all goes back into the running of the show. And you will find your place in the very prestigious, drum roll. <laughs> that, 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 that hurt my fingers. <laughs> You'll find your place in the Hall of Fame. Now, this week, thank you so much, John McDowell, Tom Lehrmans, Daniel Waddington, and Matthew Martin, who all made donations into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. You can do the same. We've got a little PayPal button and a cryptocurrency. If you're into that, you'll find it all on the front page of our website, theretrohour.com. Now, before we chat to David Wise, um, a few stories that we need to talk about this week. Artificial intelligence. What, yes. do, you what do you think of that? I, I, it's scary, Skynet <laughs> and all that. But um, what they're actually doing at the moment with artificial intelligence is they are training it using old arcade games. So they're doing a lot of stuff for facial recognition on the internet and everything. But for kind of training the intelligence, they're using old stuff to kind of pick the patterns. And, you know, with these old games, you'd have certain patterns that people would learn. So, for example, in Pac-Man, there was a certain pattern you could learn where you could hide your Pac-Man on a place on the map and none of the ghosts would get you. So yeah. if you were doing a Pac-Man marathon, you could use that and then go for a pee or have some food or something <laughs> and then go back to your marathon. And the AI is actually finding these patterns, but it's doing it a lot more efficiently than humans did. Well, a lot of these early arcade games, I mean, they were quite simplistic, but they relied a lot on kind of memorising like motor functions and it was reflex-based, a lot of it, wasn't mm -hmm. it? So it was good for learning that kind of reactionary stuff. And there is actually a learning computer that's based at the University of Freiburg in Germany and it's been playing Qbert. Ah, yeah, Qbert. So that's by Warren Davis, and we've had him on the show. So check that episode out. It's really good. Qbert, it was one of the really pioneering games. It was a very original game as well. It was like, you know, a totally unique concept when it came out. And you remember how Qbert worked. He had to jump from cube to cube, and he had to change the colours, didn't he? And he went, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> exactly like that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you get a little speech bubble to come up with yeah. The, uh, yeah, the weird language in. And then, you know, you change all the colours, get rid of the enemies, and you move on to the next level. Well, there's an artificial intelligence unit that's actually found a better way of playing Cubert. And it realised that instead of going through the laborious process of playing the game properly, it actually finishes the first level of the game. And then after that, it just jumps in what seems like a random manner from platform okay. to platform over and over and over again. And then it doesn't actually advance to the second round of the game for some reason. But instead, the platforms start to blink and go <laughs> crazy. And then it awards a huge amount of points to the player, uh, close to a million, apparently. The, the, the computer is cheating at Qbert. <laughs> All this millions and millions of pounds worth of academic artificial intelligence unit has found a glitch that no one knew about in Qbert. <laughs> wow. That's, that's pretty cool, actually. Uh, did, did Warren Davies know about it? Well, the bastard, he said no. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't aware of this. And he said that, you know, they're, actually, they're not running this on, like, an arcade cabinet. It hasn't got, like, you know, Terminator claws, and it's not playing the joysticks. No, yeah, that, but, but that shows me how evil AI can be. <laughs> but the fact is it found a way to do it. And I was reading something similar as well. I mean, there was actually an AI machine that avo avoided defeat in Tetris a couple of years ago. Its solution was... Pausing the game. That's genius. Yeah. So it, it couldn't get beat then, so it's like, you know, that's the kind of thing your little brother would do, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not playing then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, different way of thinking, you see. Totally. Now, a couple of years ago, 
We were all reading paper magazines. Do you remember when we grew up? Do you remember magazines you used to buy in shops? Oh, yeah, I used to buy lots. CVG, I used to buy um, Micromart, I used to buy... Games Master, do you Games, read that? Uh, no, official PlayStation magazine, I used to get that one. Yeah. Just get the Amiga mags. See you, Amiga, all of those. Yeah, Amiga format. And it kind of seems in recent years, you know, magazines have kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit. I mean, we did have, you men- mentioned Micromart there. That was one of the recent casualties. We remember when that went about a year ago. And that was kind of one of those mags that I would always pick up if I was in like Asda or Tesco or somewhere yeah. and you see it. It's, it's kind quite- of like people like us uh, kind of taking over the magazine's jobs at the moment. But the main thing is, New magazines are also coming out, which is just absolutely fantastic. And we've been informed about this one called Paleotronic. And this is a two-women startup based in Australia. Yeah. And it's a brand-new retro magazine. So you can subscribe on Indiegogo, and the first issue is kind of free. There's a, you know, little preview of it that you can check out. But they are looking at some really interesting stuff. I find this interesting. It's uh, the Consumer Electronics Show you know, the original ones and the, the history, history of them. Of them. Yeah. yeah, so they talk to Apple Code founder Steve Wozniak, like, oh, my God, Woz, we want you on the show. Um, Come Stu- on, Woz. Yeah, Stuart Chaffee. And these are just amazing figures in gaming and kind of in the history of computers as well. They talk about Apple too. They've got a whole issue that's centred around cathode ray tubes <laughs> oh, <laughs> proper hardcore oh, yeah stuff I, I just can't wait for this one i'm looking at the front cover here and they've got like uh, you know an apple newton on there which you don't you don't see all that often in the cover of magazines no. anymore an atari st a commodore 64 the the nintendo zappers on there too and they're talking about quantum link which i think was like it's an early bbs kind of commodore 64 service yeah what became aol wasn't it yeah quantum link um they got Stuff about Amiga soundtrack and mods in there as well. The Jackintosh, that'll be, you know, the, the Atari ST. And I love the fact as well that it is a magazine from Australia. Yeah, coming from Australia is great as well because actually we haven't heard that much about the Australian perspective in kind of mainstream computer technology sections, you know. Well, I know they, they had a quite a similar history to us here in the UK. I know a lot of the machines that were big over here were big there too. But I always remember reading like, you know, when I used to buy like Amiga Format, for example, you'd always kind of get like, kind of peed off people from Australia writing in saying I don't get the magazine until like three months later yeah, and I yeah. pay $15 for it it's like but having a magazine on the flip side of that because I imagine it's probably the same with like Retro Gamer magazine now if you buy it abroad it probably costs a lot more than it and does and also here. the internet kind of decentralises it all you know you, you get it from Indiegogo it gets printed and it gets sent and stuff so you know, it's it's not like where they had to import it and then send you know really overpriced copies in the shop and everything well I love a paper magazine, though. I love the smell of, you know, folding back the front cover. and You know what I used to do? <laughs> I, when I really loved the magazine, I used to read the first, like, seven pages. Yeah. And then I'd put it aside and save it <laughs> for later in the week and then read the other ones. So you didn't indulge it. all at once? Yeah, yeah, just don't do it all at once. Really read them detailed. Yeah. Anyone that used to read magazines back in the 90s, I'm going to say... You, as soon as I say this, you'll remember that smell. Do you remember peeling off a floppy disk, like on yeah. the cover? Do you remember <laughs> yeah. the smell of that tape? That's oh. what they need to do next with this. Have like floppy disk. So it comes with a free cathode ray tube. <laughs> yeah, and they're very high voltage. Yeah. Probably that's probably not the safest idea. <laughs> but it's great to see a new uh, magazine coming out, and especially one about retro gaming. I mean, there is obviously the big one, but it's nice to have more out there. Yeah, and I think it's a kind of wider, wider look at the technology as well, which is just fascinating. Yeah, a bit beyond gaming, a bit more computers too, yeah. which is cool. So if you want to find out more about that, it's uh, brand new. It's on Indiegogo right now, and we'll put the link in this week's show notes. Along with all the other stories, you'll find them at theretrohour.com. Now, when you were a kid, 
Did you look after your games or were you a bit reckless? Most of my games were copied, so I didn't look after them. But there was this one incident where I was quite reckless with my friends' games, which was uh, my best friend John Forpard borrowed me uh, a copy of Desert Strike and I kind of took it home and then uh, dropped it down the stairs and it just smashed to pieces. And that was like really early PlayStation when the original PlayStation the big thick cases boxes. were like really expensive, you know, PlayStation originals. Yeah. So I uh, kind of glued it together because we this was still in primary well, school. We're, we're super know, glue. We're super glue, yeah. And made this kind of PlayStation original box mosaic-looking thing, <laughs> handed it back to him, and then subsequently got battered by my uh, best mate. Yeah, so no longer your best friend after that. Yeah. <laughs> he, well, still, he still remembers it. I went to his wedding and he still remembers it. <laughs> well, at least you got an invite to the wedding. You yeah. didn't know him for that long. Uh, but for me, I remember there was a kid at my school. I lent him a, uh, a Commodore tape, and it was over Christmas, and he'd been off like for a week before Christmas with the flu. Then we had the Christmas holidays. And there's a copy of an old uh, fighting game called Yi Ah Kung Fu. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, a crap version of uh, International Karate Plus. Sounds crap. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> that good at all. It was like four or five stages that repeated over and over. But, I mean, I didn't have many games then. It was before I figured out tape to tape copy, actually. And I'd, I'd loan my original copy of the game to him. And then when he got back, I was asking for it every other day. You know, you're going to bring my game back then? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll bring it back tomorrow. Didn't for ages. Eventually got it back about a month later, and he gave me it back without the cassette tape box. Oh, no. What was your solution? Well, I said to him, where is it? And he goes, you didn't give me the box. I'm like, definitely did. So then I went home. I thought, right, you know, I need to sort this myself. Actually made my own cover using felt tips. (laughs) And I I think I've still got that. So if I can find that, I'll put a picture on there on on our Twitter. That's pretty epic. But that's the thing. I mean, you used to look at... You know, look look around markets and all that kind of thing back then. Kind of dodgy copies would have to, often have kind of homebrew artwork on them, wouldn't they? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we're talking about this because there's this Twitter account, which is uh, called Abused Games. Now, this is, it's a lot of it is like cartridge kind of based games that I imagine they probably had, you know, people like I had in the house, you know, a younger sibling who didn't respect your property. So we're looking at like, you know, a copy of uh, Animal Crossing New Leaf that's had its cover completely scratched off the label off the cartridge is missing so it's actually got a bit of paper behind it just wrapped around it saying what it is or maybe a copy of goldeneye on the n64 well they've actually put some kind of you know those 80s um sunglasses that like calvin harris wears yeah, with yeah. they've actually drawn that on ps <laughs> i'm just looking at what here is pokemon snap and some guys wrote possibly the worst game ever made and then drawn <laughs> an awful dreamcast logo on the side of it Obviously, a, a, a Dreamcast fan there. <laughs> yeah, nice to see them in the wild now and then. <laughs> but this uh, Twitter account, Abuse Games, it's called. They go through and they kind of rate them so that they've rated that one condition acceptable. <laughs> so if you ever got any, any like, you know, beat up old cartridges or discs or anything like that, uh, get them sent in at Abuse Games on Twitter. It's worth a look through as well. It's quite a giggle, I think. And do you remember a couple of years ago, there was that big scandal in retro gaming that it turned out Mario had retired on the sly. Oh, God, retired. Do you think he collected too many coins and he's just like uh, sitting on his pile? He stopped being a plumber. Now, I think it was actually the start of last year, wasn't it, the story broke? And Nintendo Japan had put like a little biog on their website of Mario, which you think is pretty harmless. And there was one sentence in there that sent the gaming world into absolute outrage. And that was Mario used to be a plumber, the sentence said. And everyone's like, whoa, hang on. We didn't know he Used to be, yeah. yeah. What happened there? Well, now it turns out they've actually amended that copy on their website, and now Mario's biog, they've restored the equilibrium in the universe, he's now plumber again. Yeah, do you reckon it was just a recession, and he's kind of lost <laughs> his job, and he's just hanging around the house? You know, now they've rang him up again and said, Mario, we've got some pipes that need cleaning. 
<laughs> well, there is a comment here on this article on Kotaku. Um, this comment, it goes, Fans are actually insane. Mario has not once plumbed anything is in, in his entire career that I can remember. So what does he do after saving the princess? He's back in his nine to five, unblocking the toilets of the kingdom. Oh, God. After Bowser, I wouldn't like that. <laughs> I mean, that's a bit disrespectful as well. He's rescued the princess, and then they put him like cleaning the U-bends in the castle. Yeah, yeah. That's not right. So, you know, demand a bit more respect, Mario. That plumber is quite well paid. Uh, before we get into this week's interview with David Wise, tell us about the untold story of the women who created the internet. This is a new book. Yeah, it's called Broadband, and it's by Claire L. Evans, and she is a writer for Voice, okay. which is a really cool media outlet. Like a culture magazine, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And they're talking about how... Women were actually, you know, originally when they talk about computers, uh, that would be the role of a woman. She would be uh, the human computer okay. and basically come in and, you know, when they had Bletchley Park and they were doing, there was that great film, The, um, the Imitation Game. Yeah. And they would talk about how there were women behind the scenes that would be doing computers. Actually, there wasn't many women in that film, surprisingly. No. But uh, this is like the backstage story of it and... I think this is a really important thing that needs to be kind of expressed and put into the mainstream media. You know, it's it's been ignored and there's films at the moment, you know, there's a Hidden Figures which has come out which has showed how women really help with the calculations of NASA yeah. and the kind of moon landing. There's also The Rise of the Rocket Girls which is... That was all I was thinking of, yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of getting into mainstream culture but the true story hasn't been told and, you know... Women involved in kind of, oh, computers, it's, it's been absolutely massive. You know, Ada Lovelace, she was uh, involved coding for Babbage's Difference Engine. This is like, you know, before any concept of a computer program or a digital computer existed. Yeah, and it's like, you know, you often think of the stereotypical kind of old school image of, uh, you know, a computer program. It's always a guy in like a white lab coat back then. Yeah, but then you always see the footage and there's always these women back in the back, you know, doing fantastic work. And, and, you know, they've kind of been ignored. And this is great that this book's coming out. So I recommend that everyone has a little look at it and kind of buys it. Just to find out a story that you probably didn't know anything about before. Yeah, and we would love to have more women on the podcast. We're always struggling. You know, it's hard because those early days of computing, um, there's a lot of men that would be noticed and talked about. Mm. But... Um, I think out of our 100 guests, we've only had a few women on, so we'd love to have more. Sally, we're not going to get the Countess of Lovelace on because she died in 1852, but you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, but if you, if you see the films yeah. about Ada Lovelace, they're absolutely amazing. She was a, called an eccentric back then, but she was an actual genius. You know, if you, especially, I mean, they're doing an, e, uh, an e-book version of an audio book as well, which, you know, I love audio books, because when you're yeah. driving around or you're on a plane or something, they're really good to listen to. And again, it's just, it's hearing something about an industry and kind of an invention that you love that you didn't realise had this kind of hidden history. Yeah, I, I definitely. Like and, that. you know, I think because we're doing a show about this, we really need to promote stuff like this. Absolutely. So it's by Claire L. Evans. It's called The Untold Story of the Women Who Made the Internet Broadband, it's called. So if you want to get that, we'll put a link in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Right then, guys and girls, uh, thank you for checking out episode number 113 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next Friday. Uh, please do keep all your reviews coming in on your favourite podcast clients. I think we're nearly up to 100 on iTunes now. Oh, yeah, totally. And join us on discord as well please what you've been chatting about on discord then 
Uh, beer. Yeah, again. <laughs> for, beer for quite a while, yeah. I do look, I have a little look on Discord, you know, because I can't get on it at work normally because I think I firewall at work, blocks it, I've still got it on my phone. I've scrolled back through the day and I'm like, yeah, Ravi's talking about yeah, all sorts of random stuff on it. Oh, what's that there? But there's like, there's quite a lot in there. We've got a couple of mods and, and stuff. The, in you there know, now. the quite cool thing is actually that you have quite a lot of people from Europe that will talk yeah. and then they'll all go to bed. And then all the Americans will talk, and then you check it, and you're like, oh, there's been a whole conversation going whilst I've been away. Because that was one thing about IRC. When you logged onto an IRC server, you kind of got dropped in, but you didn't know what had gone on before, unless your computer had been on all day. Yeah. So that's kind of cool to catch up on conversations that you missed. And I just think, do you remember being a teenager, and you're probably like me, did you get hooked on like IRC and stuff in chat rooms? And- yeah, I was absolutely hooked on IRC. Um, I would do trading, I would do uh, file exchanges, I would have war bots that would yeah. go into other channels and f- flood, do mass flooding. Yeah, uh, very naughty you on troll. IRC. Yeah. <laughs> well, none of that in our Discord server, no. Although You do want to make a war bot, don't you? No, shush. <laughs> He's a good boy, really. Yeah. So if you're going to join us on there, though, I mean, it does kind of, you know, go. I, I haven't been on there enough yet, and I do need to get on it more I know but it does kind of recapture that kind of magical era of chat rooms actually yeah totally it's a load of fun so if you want to join us in that you'll find the link um, you get a little web client or you can get apps for your phone or your desktop you can get those on the front page of our website theretrohour.com right let's do a bit of reminiscing about Rare some classic NES NES N64 games this week's special guest I need to go make him a cup of tea before he comes in the studio David Wise is our guest this week and we'll catch you next Friday ciao You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Welcome to the studio, David Wise. Hello, and thank you for inviting me on. It's always nice when we get people actually in the studio as opposed to Skype. Um, Because we actually did a panel not long ago at Audio Base Festival in Nottingham, didn't we? Uh, That's right, absolutely. It was a good festival, nice, bijou, petite, but it was very nice and welcoming. Yeah, and we loved your live performances as well that you're doing on stage. Lovely, thank you. Yeah, well, I'm still refining it, but it's getting better all the time. Are you doing quite a lot of those, are you, then? The uh, next one is in Kuwait, Mm. and then I've got some in Bavaria in Germany later in the year, um, hopefully, and there's there's maybe a few other things coming up later in the year as well. I love the uh, Phil Collins drumming that you had going on in that. <laughs> yes, uh, I brought my uh, uh, friend Nigel, who's a very good drummer, and he had him doing the Phil Collins-type drum fill that was used in the Cadbury adverts, if I'm allowed to... Uh, of course. <laughs> yes, reference that. And in that advert, they've got a big gorilla in a big gorilla suit, yeah. and he goes, do, 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 do. and I kind of borrowed some of that riff for one of the tracks from Tropical Freeze, and we were demonstrating some of the composition. So every time that riff came on, Nigel would play the drums completely <laughs> oblivious of the fact that there's this big monkey behind him playing the drums. <laughs> It must be great to get out there and do these tracks live in front of an audience. It, it, it is. Yeah. I don't do it very often, but it, it's um, it's very nice when you do. Well, let's get. We're going to get into the stories of your games that you've worked on because there's been, you know, some really huge titles that you've worked on over the years. But I mean, going all the way back to day one. I mean, you know, this is always a question we like to find out. You get a bit of background. I mean, what's kind of your earliest gaming memory then, or, or computer memory? Where, where did it all begin for you? Computers in general, not not with music. It was ping pong. You know, that tennis game. Um, my dad brought home the ping pong type thing, plugged it into the TV, and we played it for twenty minutes, and then, uh, you know, that was done. <laughs> well, what was your first kind of experience of hearing digital music? Digital music, I suppose it was a CD, and my first CD was um, by a band called X-Ray Specs years and years and years ago, and that would have been my first entry into digital music. 
but my first experience of writing music for the um, what was it for the NES, I suppose. Mm. Yes, it would have been. Uh, that was a game called Slalom. So very, very early, I think again in that festival, I, I sort of played a snippet of that. And um, it was very, very early days at that point. I love the fact you mentioned the um, first CD that you bought. I think anyone that's a fan of music always remembers their first like CD or album they bought, don't they, as well? Yeah, I can't remember. I, I did buy albums before that, yeah. and I can remember having, um, you know, the Sex Pistols album, Clash albums and things like that, and uh, certainly some Police, because I really like the Police. Yeah. But, yeah, the first CD, digital music, was X-Ray Specs. Mine was Technotronics Pump Up the Jam albums, though. Not, not quite as cool. Mine was <laughs> The Verve, uh, Urban Hymns. Oh, yeah. Another cool album. <laughs> so they kind of your musical influences growing up. Then did you like a lot of like that new romantic kind of stuff. Then did you like I any think of that? Really, punk, punk rock really yeah. was was the first influence, mm-hmm. and then I sort of came around to some of the, uh, as you say, new romantic, and some progressive rock as well. It's a, it's a whole mix really, and classical music as well because I'd I'd learned that when I was playing the piano. So as you mentioned, you learnt piano. I understand you learnt a lot of other instruments afterwards. Yeah, I, I like learning different instruments. So I've got quite a collection at home, quite an eclectic collection. Things like mandolins and uh, I think they're called bazookies, which is like a oversized mandolin, Irish instrument. I've got various guitars, um, grand piano. I've got lots of electronic things, lots of saxophones because I like playing the sax. And, uh, yeah, loads of things, bass guitar, normal guitars. As someone who learned with, like, you know, acoustic instruments, you could say, what got you into making digital computer music then? Why did you decide to do that? I, uh, well, um, it's almost by accident. My, my father worked at Leicester Polytechnic, who's in charge of the computer department there, and they've, they've got these big mainframe computers and they're doing really technical stuff. I wasn't really into computers. I was never going to touch a computer. I thought they were just very nerdy and that kind of stuff. And being into punk rock and playing drums as I was at the time, it was I was too cool for school, so I was never going to do it. So I, I, my first job was at a place in Leicester called Soundpad, and I was selling drums. I was upstairs. Nobody ever came upstairs. And one day, this chap brought in a Yamaha CX-5, and nobody knew how to use it. And at that point, I wasn't particularly interested in learning how to use it. But then they said, well, uh, you can have an extra day off a week for the next four weeks if you want to go home and, and learn how to use it. So I thought, well, I'll buy that. I'm sold. So I, I took it home, read the manual many, many times, and learned how to use this CX-5, which was a little music computer by Yamaha. And it had a little FM, four operator FM chip in it and MIDI as well. So that means you could control other synths outside the box of the CX-5. How kind of revolutionary was MIDI when you first kind of used it? It was incredibly early days. I mean, if it seems really basic and taken for granted now, but at the, at the time, to play one synth and take a cable out of it and to be able to play another one, that was revolutionary, that was world-changing. Suddenly you could have a nice DX sound on your DX7 and play a Juno 106 sound at the same time. Mm. And you know, that was that was quite quite a thing, really. So I remember seeing my friend at school. He had a MIDI keyboard and an Atari ST, and I was blown away that it could play the instruments. And it did seem like you could actually have like a band in your bedroom on your own. Yeah, you could. I also had an Atari ST, and I had a copy of the Cubase. Uh, no, early Cubase. I think it was called Pro Twenty Four, and that was my first program on the Atari ST. 
think it had about a megabyte of memory, which was quite revolutionary as well. You're never going to fill that. No, no, <laughs> never, ever. I can remember when I had a two gigabyte drive. Yeah, two gigs, and I thought, I'm never going to fill that, and now we've got terabytes, haven't we? Yeah, so. they're still running out of room. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, how did the use of the CX-5 lead to you kind of meeting up with the guys from Rare? I was, by this point, I was, instead of... Uh, demonstrating drums upstairs and talking to nobody. I was downstairs on the main shop floor, outselling everybody by 10 to 1, really, um, just demonstrating MIDI keyboards. People would come in and go, oh, yeah, that's great, that's that's the future, and they'd, they'd walk out. One day, two gentlemen walked in, and they were called Tim and Chris Stamper, who later went on to form Rare, and they, they said, well... Um, can you demonstrate this equipment? I had no idea who they were, never heard of them in my life, because you wouldn't have done. I just thought there were two gentlemen that I was going to sell a CX-5 to. So I demonstrated things like We Close Our Eyes by... Go West. Go West, yeah. that's, that's, that's the band. And a few other things, Nick Kershaw, and people like that who are well into the um, electronic instruments. And he said, well, have you got anything else that you can show us? I said, well, there's a couple more, and I, I played them. I didn't tell them who'd written it. And... Um, Eventually they asked, well, well, what's this? We don't recognise it. So I said, well, it's something I've written. And Chris turned to Tim and he said, oh, it sounds like monsters. And I'm thinking, monsters? What What does that mean? <laughs> um, but they seemed to like it and they said, oh, have you got an office? And I thought, wow, another sale. That wasn't too bad, was it? <laughs> so we went upstairs having showed them the CX-5 and a Korg Poly 800 and a Korg SQD1, which was a sequencer, which is like a little computer in a box that talks to lots of instruments and uh, we went upstairs and they, they said oh um would you be, would you be interested in coming to work for us and um of course it was a lot more money i was on a yts scheme still i was still outselling everybody and i was still on a yts scheme at 35 pounds a week and they were offering me 40 pounds so that was uh you know it was a clear winner <laughs> absolutely so did you have any idea about the games industry at all no no, it was it was a bit weird. It was a bit of a strange job. Because they'd, uh, they'd bought all of this equipment and hired me, and we took all of this equipment over to Twycross, and they had a farmhouse there, a very nice farmhouse, and I was in an office, Billy No Mates, all on my own, and they said, do what you want, go and create some music. So I created some music for a couple of things that they were demonstrating. One of them was Slalom, and I'd I got uh, a rolling sound canvas as well. I got all these great sounds. And they said, oh, yeah, that, that sounds great, but you've got to put it on this. And then they showed me Mario. And I was going to have to put it on this little chip, which is basically an 8910 chip, for lack of a better description, which is, I think it's two square waves, a saw wave, and a noise channel. And you've got four notes, four very simple waveforms and I had to take all of this music that I spent the last three or four weeks composing and turn it into chip music and I didn't really have any experience of programming at that point I just had to uh, decode it on the keyboard it went from 81 in hex language 81, 82, A, B, C, D, F then up the scales and then we also had the length of the note which is also a hex value so I wrote all these codes down and stuff and started programming away and it was a bit hit and miss took a lot of experimentation but eventually I, I learned how to manipulate the NES to actually play tunes back that were very basic and sounded like a glorified doorbell <laughs> well as you said it had to fit on this tiny chip and it was also on a cart which is 
you know, must have really limited the amount of information you could have on there. Oh, well, yes, and also memory was at a premium, so it had to be as small as possible. There was nothing like MIDI, you couldn't use MIDI, it had to be programmed in because it kept the memory footprint as small as possible. Uh, would the game developer allow you a certain amount of space? Or? Yeah, you had to really argue for that, though. <laughs> I mean, if they could have taken it for graphics, they would. When we were working on the Super NES, which uh, we'll talk about later, it had 64K, and they wanted to take 32K for the graphics compression. Had to really fight for that one. You know, do you think having a background in reading music, did that help you make computer music then? And do, or do you think you don't need that skill? Or um, I don't... I can read music, mm-hmm. but I've, since I've had piano lessons, I've never used the ability to read music. It's all done by ear, because it's a much faster medium, it's a lot more accurate, and it's it's a lot more free as well. It's a lot more expressive. Reading yeah. music's very mechanical. It's very even more computer music than computer music, really. Yeah, good point. I mean, you know, the NES was obviously a huge console around the world, more so in America than it was here. Yes. I mean, did it feel a bit strange for you to kind of be on the other side of the pond working on this system that was bigger, like, a thousand miles away? Obviously, I was working in Twycross, which Mm -hmm. is in the middle of nowhere. We didn't have the internet. I didn't know anything. I didn't know how big the NES was. No idea at all. I just thought it was some random small town thing that they were trying to, you know, trying to squeeze some tunes out of and some games out of how big it was at the time I, I didn't know I, I wouldn't know for several years even after the Super NES Did you have any freelancers joining because I know a hard thing uh, for a lot of developers was actually getting contracts as freelancers and being in house it must have been a bit reassuring just to uh, Again I, I didn't know anybody in the world who was doing what I did so you were just in this isolated kind of... Isolated box, yes. That was your world. <laughs> yes, in fact, there's a song at the time, wasn't there? I'm a living in the box. <laughs> that was me. Well, I mean, did you get to see much of like the rest of the company then? Did you have like you know staff nights out? Was, was there any kind of culture there? Were you literally locked away in your own all the time? Uh, it was very small. There, there were only a few people there. There was um, Tim, Chris, myself, a guy called Kev Spalius, who I still um, drink with these days, uh, Mark Betteridge very small team so the culture was working and, and we worked we went in at nine o'clock in the morning we we're probably still there at 12 o'clock at night six days sometimes seven days a week we we were really into what we were doing and they wanted these results so we i was i was very pleased to have a job writing music because it was what i'd always wanted to do even though i probably didn't know it and it was a lot more rewarding than work, either working in a music shop. Before that, I worked at Walker's Crisp, picking chips off the belt. It was much more fun than doing that. So to, to have the freedom to do something that I really enjoyed and get paid for it was just brilliant. Well, how was the relationship between Nintendo and Red? Did you ever see any Japanese guys going around or anything? Yeah, eventually, in the Super NES days, but I was kept away from all of the management side. I was I was quite young, eighteen or nineteen at the time, and um, yeah, it wasn't wasn't really my world. I was just pleased to be making music. What were your favourite early projects that you worked on then? Any that kind of really stick in your mind? They was well, Solomon was the first one, so that's always going to stay there. And I went through when I started doing these kind of live things and performances for universities I went through quite a lot of the old stuff and you could hear it develop over time when you learnt how to really manipulate the sound chip and and start to get the best out of it and one that I'd completely forgotten about was one called Time Lord and that's got a um, it's almost as when you listen to it 
I don't know, 25 years after you've written it, you've got a, a better perspective on it. And that was really quite well programmed and, and written, that one. And there was a vast chasm between the original one and by the time we got to that, we were really starting to make some good musical sense out of it. Were there any kind of tricks or effects that you employed to make the NAS do stuff it shouldn't? <laughs> yes, but it was all very nerdy. So uh, if you can nerd out for a few minutes, we'll... Uh, you've... On the two main channels, you you can change the pulse width of it, so it it makes, a, uh, and then it makes a. Eh. It's it's very it's almost as though somebody's just changed the EQ on it, but that's quite a luxury when you've only got four notes mm. that sound very similar, and you could take a, a channel and you could basically copy it and offset it. So you might offset it by, I don't know, nine, a value of nine in hex, and then you've got this kind of delay and it sounds bigger. And it sounds nicer because you've got this slight MIDI delay on it, really, for lack of a better word. And that's nice, but then you lose the chord, but at least you've got a nice lead sound. So I found that if you could suggest the chords using um, the four channels, and then when it came to the lead stuff, because you'd already set the chord pattern up in people's heads, you could lose that information and then just play the lead. So you've already established the chord sequence and then just play the lead and it seemed to work the other thing that I did as well was to swap or go through the sounds quite quickly and then you've got some movement in the sounds and, and that's the whole deal with composition it's movement and e even back in the early days I found that if you've give, given something some life and some movement even if it's quick and it's subtle it sounds better than just playing a note it must have took you ages to work out these routines and tricks though. oh it did yeah you know, years really mm. to optimise it to 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 give a good performance and and that's what it was about really it's giving giving the music some life and some movement to get the performance that you want when we got into the 16-bit era you know i think most people do consider the super nintendo had the the best sound chip of that era i mean that must have seemed like a, a whole new world had opened up oh absolutely yeah when you've been fighting the nes and trying to get the best out of it when somebody offers you eight channels of samples even if it's four bit pcm it's it's a, it's a world of difference it sounded quite good as well the decompression on that chip you know went to 16 bits and even though it was a four bit sample it still sounded very nice the only downside was 64k of memory that was tiny so did you kind of feel a bit of superiority over the uh, genesis with their sound chip back then or the, I'd done some work on the Genesis. Uh, I think it was the FM chip, wasn't it, yeah. on, on the Genesis? So that was quite nice because when I was working at the music shop, I'd learned how to program the DX7. And it was very hard work because it was a menu-based system. So to be given a computer where you could actually edit values and hear the results fairly instantaneously, that was, that was quite a revelation, really. And I still enjoy writing with FM sounds today. I still quite like the sounds and there's still so much more that you can do with FM that still needs to be explored, but probably never will be. So did you start to get any interest in playing the games themselves around this stage, and when you're working on them, or is it really just all about doing the music? Mainly working on the music. And I'll tell you what, there's a story there. Zelda, you know, the first one on, on the NES. Yeah. I, I love that game. Um, I loved it a bit too much because once I started playing it, I was hooked and I couldn't put it down. And I'd play, I played it for three weeks and I wasn't being I was on contract at that point I later became in-house but it meant that all the time that I was playing that game I wasn't getting paid for it but it was so addictive for three weeks I did nothing but play that game and I'd, um, after three weeks when I'd just run out of money I thought if I carry on playing games I'm going to be so broke 
<laughs> so I'm very. It was I learned the discipline to be able to put them down. Although I do do enjoy playing them, I like the switch kind of thing where you can just yeah. pick something up and play it for half an hour, put it down again. That's great because if I get hooked on something. It's it's not financially, it's a yeah, financial ruin. Yeah, you couldn't play Zelda if they cut the power off, could you? No, no absolutely. <laughs> but you can on the Switch. It's got, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Well, there were some big titles that came out for the SNES, and Killer Instinct was one that had a really big soundtrack. Um, did you kind of get involved with Killer Instinct, or did you use any parts of their...? I was involved with Killer Instinct really just for the setup. We were... Um, we did it on an arcade machine, first of all, and it was by Williams. So they flew me out to Williams to see how they got the compression to work and get quite a large soundtrack onto a very small cartridge space that they could use. So we'd done the... Let me see, we're working on the getting the arcade system working, but by this, this point, Graham Norgate, who you met the other week, and Robin Beanland, they were brought on, and that was really their their puppy, and they they took over and did a fantastic job with Killer Instinct. Well, Donkey Kong Country was one absolutely massive project, and it really pushed the SNES to to its limits. Um, Was there a lot of pressure with that? I was probably blissfully unaware of the pressure. I was very happy to be given eight channels, even though it was eight monophonic channels, 64K of memory. And it, after working on the NES, it was like somebody giving you a Christmas cake every day. It was, <laughs> it was like somebody giving you a new new toy. And because I was really into it, because of the way my brain's wired, um, I was just in, you know, really into it. And all the stuff that I'd learnt from doing the NES and taking things down to very small components and trying to get the best out of it really gelled with my, my brain at the time. Um, we didn't have a lot of memory, so... To, to compensate for that, I was really into a synth by Korg called the Wave Station, and that's got tiny little samples on there. And what they'd done, they'd, they'd sampled it at various different cutoff frequencies down to a single cycle and swept through them, and then suddenly you've got a, um, a, a filter sweep, even though there's no filter, or there wasn't a filter on one of the versions of it. And I thought, well, I could do that on the Super NES because everything was still coded at that point. I could take it down to really nuts and bolts, down to single cycles, and I could set up subroutines and do stuff that you just couldn't do if you had MIDI at that point. So I did exactly the same. I got a Juno, Alpha Juno 2 synth, and I got a tone, put the filter on it, and sampled it, I don't know, loads and loads and loads of times at different pitches and at different cut-off frequencies, different resonances, and sampled hundreds of waveforms and got a collection of about 20 that worked. And if you put them all together, and it's just by, you know, you just play them for a fraction of a second, they they cross over, uh, cross-fade in, into each other and out very quickly. And suddenly you've got a filter sweep, and that, for me, was, hey, that's great. So just little things like that. And there was also with the wave sequencing as well, is they used it for bass sounds where they'd step through sounds and it would just change the timber and nothing had been done on the um, Super NES like that or, or really a lot of synths. So I was able to, and if you listen to Aquatic Ambience, it's just stepping through waves um, with a bit of a... a, a volume cut off at the end and it, and it does it quite nicely it sets up a nice pulse and a nice rhythm which was nice to, to base the rest of the song on well that game I remember reading about it at the time and you know graphically it was that kind of pseudo 3D wasn't it yes you know, they it used was the Silicon Graphics Engine 4 and everything and it kind of you know I read about it at the time and people were talking about how it's like such a revolutionary game and I imagine there was quite 
maybe like a goal to make that like kind of a next generation game? I mean, were you given kind of a brief to make this like really powerful? And I was aware that they were using pre-rendered graphics, and when you'd seen what was working on the SNES before on what they'd done with the silicon graphics machines, it, I don't think it was um, competition. It was. Uh, to be able to complement and support what the guys were doing with the graphics and not let them down. Because mm. you, you, uh, we're talking about camaraderie. You are aware you are part of a team and you want to support the team as, as much as possible. And um, I was really trying to stretch the boundary of what was on the, on the sound chip so it matched the quality of the graphics. Did it feel like you're trying to push the system to the limits with that game? Though? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think when we got to the next one, DKC2, then we, we, I think that's as far as I could push it anyway. Well, uh, how early on did you get the Ultra 64, as it was then? Uh, I didn't know it was called the Ultra 64. (laughs) And uh, I didn't know at the time either that it was called the Super um, NES in Japan. So it's... um, I have a lot of names that are still incredibly retro because they were they were our internal names. Uh, it was just came along one day and somebody put it on my desk and said we're doing this game. I've heard stories. You know, it was Project Reality. I think it was originally called, and like people like having access to prototype units that were the size of photocopiers and everything. I mean, was it mostly finished product when you started working on it? Uh, I think it was. Yeah, it was. A, it was quite a small unit with just this interface that went through to a PC, and that was that was my system i'm sure they've been working on it for a lot longer doing all the the high level stuff so by the time it got to me and also as ever with video games audio tends to be the last bit in the chain so all the graphics are done then they show you and you go okay i know what to do here and you get on with it well the world had got a bit smaller by this point with the rise of the internet in the mid 90s i mean did you start to kind of see a bit more of what was out there or no i was still beavering away in the the it was the cow sheds they converted them into the music office mm-hmm. we didn't have the internet because they figured that if we did we'd be distracted by it which is a good point fair point so really at this point i i had no idea and it was still quite hard to get the internet and it was still very slow even in a domestic situation so I didn't really explore things. When was the first time you went to Japan then? That was, we were doing the N64, we were doing Diddycon Racing or at least we'd finished it and we were invited over to the uh, Nintendo Computer Show or something very similar and it's basically in Akihabara, this big, huge hall and they demonstrate, Pokemon was really big as well, that was probably the biggest game at the time and we went over because Diddycon racing was being shown at this this games festival it was very exciting how did you find it out there then was it was it like a bit of a culture shock yeah it's um i suppose the i'd watched uh blade runner and several years beforehand and you think oh that's just sci-fi but no it's japan (laughs) (laughs) and it's very very different especially at that point it was very different from the uk it was like going to an alien planet really it was um interesting to see what did you learn kind of about the games industry out there then? How did it differ from back home? Um, I think that was the first time I'd experienced kind of people who treated you like you were I don't know, fans, I suppose. That, that was um, People come up and say, oh, uh, we love what you've done on this, and I'd never experienced any of that before, and I just thought it was because it was Japan. So, oh, OK, well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you to say. So that that was different, and... Uh, yeah, it was. You, you, you realised that what you'd been doing was having an effect on people at that point. The thing with the N64 as well, I mean, that was kind of 
the last of its generation to use cartridges as well. Yes. I mean, were you looking, was that, did you like that or was that a limitation compared to like the PlayStation, I've said CD soundtracks and everything else did by then? I think for me, because when, when people are using CDs, uh, you can normally have a soundtrack on there that's playing straight from the CD. But again, we didn't really get that luxury until after the, um, what was it, there was the N64, then there was the GameCube. GameCube, yeah. So it was really after the GameCube the, until I could actually start using soundtracks that sounded like soundtracks. <laughs> well, did you start to get to know some of the Japanese composers then? Or no, the, the, the first time I got to meet some of the Japanese composers properly was when I was working on Tropical Freeze. And Yamamoto-san, uh, he came over to um, Texas where I was, I was at a meeting in Texas. And that's really the first time, and we had a, a, a very nice meeting. I mean, he's, a, he's a lovely gentleman, and um, I brought a photo that I'd found, and when I was about eighteen or nineteen, working at home using a very old system on the NES. And at the time, I thought I was the only person doing this kind of thing. And Yamamoto's son thought, at that age, he was the only person doing exactly that. And we were in these kind of parallel worlds doing exactly the same thing, <laughs> completely oblivious that the other person would be doing exactly the same thing. And miles away. Yes, <laughs> 6,000 miles away, but doing exactly the same kind of thing. Well, that was a huge project as well, Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze. It, it was, yes. Absolutely fantastic game. And uh, I've got it for the Wii U. Were you kind of surprised about the Wii U not performing so well? Um, well, they'd done the Wii, which had the momentum, so I don't think I was surprised that it didn't do quite as well as they wanted it to. And also they, they kept the name, so it, it was like the Wii Plus, wasn't it, rather than a new console. Um, from a marketing point of view, if it was my company, I'd have changed the name completely, but, you know, I'm not in marketing, <laughs> and there's probably a good reason for that. I mean, my brother, he's really into gaming, and I, I bought a Wii U. I think Ravi and I are like, the only guys we know that actually have them. But yeah. it's, um, I told him I got one, and he said, oh, I'm not into motion controls. He, he, like a lot of people, he thought it was just a tablet for the Wii. Yes. Yeah, I didn't realise it was a whole new system, but it was actually a pretty powerful console. Yeah, absolutely, think. yeah. I mean, it's not. The Switch isn't that much more powerful than the Wii U. Yeah, if you play Zelda on both, there's barely any difference mm, between them. Yeah. I mean, but with um, Donkey Kong um, Tropical Freeze, you used kind of a lot of wood instruments and sound, and why did you go for that kind of style with it? Probably because a lot of the instruments that I'd collected might have been um, acoustic flutes and wooden flutes, and I was just into that at the time. Did you get more into acoustic stuff going on, like compared to your previous stuff, do you think, recently? I like to use both. Mm. Uh, I think there's something about using an acoustic instrument that you can't mimic with electronics. Uh, we try, but it's so nice when you can hear somebody play something, even if it's really simple, because it's unique every single time you play it, whereas if you're playing back on a, a keyboard, it's, it's quite static by comparison. To, so to have some kind of performance there, and that's what it's all about, is, is so nice, even if it's very basic. Are there any games around in recent years that you've listened to the soundtrack to and been really impressed with? Like Anyone else out there is really good? Um, I think Metal Gear Solid, the original soundtrack, that's one of my favourites. Um, but uh, there's a lot, and you hear them, and you think they're good, but any of standout ones, if I'm... Um, I don't know. Um, I enjoy listening to them, but there's nothing that really jumps through the hoops and says, you've got to listen to me, mm -hmm. if, if I'm honest. But then the same is true about 
a lot of film soundtracks as well. The only the last time I had that, oh my god, that's a great soundtrack, was to give me a few seconds. It's back in the any Super NES days, and it was Plock. Yeah. And um, sorry, I've forgotten the chap's name who, who's who's done it. Um, the Tim Follin. Tim Follin, yes. Yeah. Tim and Jeff Follin. But um, yeah, t- Tim Follin was um, is an awesome composer and very good with his technical I think his brother Jeff did a lot of the technical stuff I'm not quite sure how it panned out but between them they'd just written this amazing soundtrack that sounded much better than anything I'd heard on the Super NES and I was just in awe of their ability to produce this great soundtrack and it was it was a good education seeing and I sort of reversed engineered what they'd done to see what they'd how they'd done it and it was very impressive stuff but that's probably the last time that I've, I've listened to a game soundtrack and thought, you know what, that is absolutely amazing. It's one of those where you pause the game and just listen to the oh, soundtrack. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, getting games briefs now, are they a lot more detailed and a lot better than what you would get back in the days? Yeah. Um, let's go to the Snake Pass hmm. with Sumo. Uh, they're a very organised company, great communication, and they just said, this is what we're doing. And it really was quite last minute um, when I started working on it. Um, so, yeah, it's it's just nice that somebody can play you something and say that this is you know, how, how we want it to go. Well, Snake Pass had that kind of great sound of movement, as you, as you mentioned. Yes. And uh, lots of instruments. You had, you know, steel drums and stuff in there. Yeah. Um, it's it's based in Chile. Um South America, Aztec, Mayan, and a lot of the instruments out there are wooden, so I, I try to keep everything as wooden as possible, so we've got xylophones, we've got wooden flutes, all the percussion on the whole is wooden, so it might be bamboo, bamboo poles, bamboo um, brush type things, everything is, as far as we can keep it, is wooden, so there's a lot of acoustic guitars on there. And just to make sure everything's nylon and wood, because it seemed to fit in with the um, atmosphere of the levels that they that they created. You do hear it. You do think like, like a snake wheeling through the jungle. It's like you know, it must be. It's quite a hard brief, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's quite a hard brief, but it's such a I don't know. Uh, again, it's so Nintendo esque. It's mm. so alluring to to watch and to play and to pick it up and, and play it there's not again it, there's not many games where I, I see a game and think you know i just need to pick the controller up and play that and that was one of them well i think the switch itself i mean that's kind of it's brought a lot of fun back to gaming i think it has i, I like that kind of fun in gaming and it's it's been a real pleasure to to work on the switch and do, do quite a few soundtracks for it how do you find it to work on then uh, technically I, I don't really have to worry about the technical stuff I, i'm very lucky i can just give people a wow for stems and they they sort it out for me but as sort of from a gaming perspective the games that are on the switch are the game sort of games i like to play yeah pick up and play games aren't they we're talking about that yeah, before. Yeah. absolutely mm. one project you must have really loved was ukulele and that was kind of the original guys of Rare coming back together and yes. is it like a school reunion? Yeah, it's very much like a school reunion because, I mean, um, most people who are working in games are very passionate about what they do and they're a good bunch, really. Everyone at Rare was, you know, we, we were, I think we were fiercely competitive but at the same time we, we probably had each other's back as well. And that kind of camaraderie that you get when you're working in a game studio, the 
certainly got that over at Retro Studios and you also have it at Sumo Digital as well. And we brought it back together for ukulele and it was nice to go in and see the guys who were working on this kind of 3D adventure game from really the N64 days. And it was nice. It was nice to be part of that. And it's not, sometimes it's just nice to kind of go back in time and do something that you enjoyed and you didn't realise you were enjoyed it at the time as much as you did. So it's it very it's it's a blessing to be able to go back and do that. There seems to be quite a lot of that around right now. These kind of classic gaming styles kind of being reinvented again. And... It's nice, isn't it? I like that. I mean, there's um, Crash Bandicoot and there's a few other ones that were great games at the time. Mm. And they've been reinvented for our time. I like all of that, and it's nice. It's nice to see some familiar characters, some familiar gameplay, and you can just jump back in. And there's obviously there's nostalgia with all of these things, and it's I don't know that kind of warm, fuzzy gaming feeling that you, you get when you're playing games that you used to play when you're I don't know ten, twenty years ago. I think the indie scenes helped that quite a lot. Yeah, I think we've got a very healthy indie scene over in the UK, haven't we? And I think it's it's very good for innovation. And hopefully there'll be a lot of exciting projects that started out as indie games that make their way to be triple A's eventually. Well, I love that kind of old school nostalgia connection because there's stuff like the Donkey Kong rap, you know, there was a ukulele rap yes. on the video yes. and it's just linking all these different elements. Yeah, I mean, that that's uh, Grant Kirkhope's bag, the kind of rap thing. So um, I'm not sure I could even write a rap that's as good as Grant, so uh, I'm very pleased he's taken that mantle on <laughs> well david you know we appreciate you coming in and joining us at like you know nine o'clock on a tuesday that like, giving That's it your time fine. <laughs> it's, it's a pleasure it's a pleasure to come in and, and talk i mean i could talk all night really i'm sure yeah it's all good fun well what projects are you working on at the moment is there anything coming up we should keep an eye out for the um uh, as ever when you're working on video game projects you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement mm-hmm. and i'd love to say but i'd have to shoot you and that would be very messy <laughs> <laughs> you'd have to edit the show then as yeah, well. yes absolutely <laughs> so uh, do you tweet and have you got a website and any website? Uh, I, um, I'm, I've got a bit of time coming up. I've just finished a project that I can't talk about, but it means that I've got a little time off at the moment mm. and I'm going to update my website. I have all these plans. I've been meaning to update it for years. So the plan is, given enough time over the next month, I'm going to update my website and um, spend a bit of time tweeting. And I've got, I've got literally thousands of photos i had a bit of a year i was busy all of last year but when people invited me somewhere and, and you go for these like short weekends away if somebody invited me i'd, I'd just say yes because um i'm very aware these days that the talk uh, the clock is ticking you know and, and whilst it's nice to spend time in your bedroom um uh, composing away it's also nice to go out and meet people so over the last two years when people said do you want to come i thought yes i'm coming so um, I've, I've been to lots of places on very brief weekends over the last two years and I've got lots and lots and lots of photos that I'm going to share on of, of these events on, on Twitter, or at least that's the plan. But every time I say I'm going to do something, then um, so far I've been very lucky as well. Things have come up and I've been very busy, so we'll see. That's the plan anyway. So if you got a selfie with David like two years ago at an event, you might see it on Twitter soon. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, yeah. yeah. Maybe, we'll see. Uh, well, keep, uh, we'll keep an eye out for what you're up to, David. It's, it's amazing talking to you. Uh, okay, memories, L- lovely. Well, thank you for inviting me on. Cheers, thank you. Thanks. Thanks.